Good morning. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exhausts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Harold. Well, good morning again. During this uh, season of Lent, we have been talking about repentance, repenting of our autonomy, that deep down all of us has this um, belief where we think that we belong to ourselves, we're completely independent beings, and God might exist, he might even be involved in our lives, but he's still kind of is at the mercy of how we want to live our lives, which means that we all have these impulses towards self-sovereignty or self-creation, self-indulgence. Uh, and uh, self-sufficiency, and, and for today, for this last uh, time, we're also going to talk about this impulse that we have towards self-righteousness. In this passage, which is a story that Jesus told a parable, I think is really helpful, and, and really you can even tell why it's helpful even by the first verse. In verse 9, you get this little detail about this audience that Jesus is addressing. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, righteous is a big Bible-y word. It sounds very religious. What does that mean? Righteousness or righteous is just this um, idea at its core of what it means to be right with, to be right with God, to be on good terms with God, to be squared up with God. So, for example, um, uh, a number of months ago, I got pulled over by the police because uh, my tags were expired. And so they gave me a ticket and a court date, and the officer said, you, uh, you know, when you go to the court, if you get your tags renewed by then, they'll waive the fine, but if you don't, they'll show up and you don't have to pay a, you know, a fee or whatever. I was not right in the eyes of the law. Something had to be done in order for this to get right. So I went out, got the tags renewed, brought my paperwork, went to the court, showed them the thing, and they kind of said, we're done here. Stamped it. You're free to go. No fine to be paid. Great. I was, I was right again in the eyes of the law. The irony was during the 30 minutes that I went into the courthouse, my car got booted in the parking lot. So, you know, that they get, you know either way, they're going to get you. That's they're going to get you. That's what my dad would say. They're going to get you coming or get you going. So I was not right with the, uh, with the parking lot company in the end. But my point is, is that so rightness, righteousness means to be right with. And here's this guy in this, or here's this audience, here's this group of people that Jesus is talking with. And these are people that ask themselves this question, am I okay? Am I measuring up? Am I the right kind of person? Am I enough? And they answer that question by looking in themselves. 
And they said, well, yeah, because of my character, because of what I do, because of what I believe, yeah, I'm, the, I'm, I'm right. God and me are cool because of something in me. That's what it means to be self-righteous. That's what it means to put confidence, to tr- trust in themselves that they are righteous. Now, you might hear all this and you think, yeah, this is such a stupid thing religious people do. I don't know why they do this. But here's what I want you to see what's so fascinating is that this impulse towards righteousness is not just a religious impulse. It's a human impulse. Jonathan Haidt, who's a social, uh, social psychologist, wrote a book called uh, The Righteous Mind. And in this book, he said, quote, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Meaning, regardless of where you are spiritually, regardless of what you think about religious stuff, everybody deep down is asking that same set of questions. Am I okay? Am I enough? Am I measuring up? Am I good? In other words, that impulse, even though in our culture we don't really care about being right with God, that impulse hasn't been extinguished. It's just been rebranded. We, we still are asking ourselves that question, and how we answer it, it makes all the difference in the world. That's why this story, I think, is so helpful, because what Jesus does is he gives us two different pictures of different ways that you can answer those questions. And so what I want to do is look at these two different pictures. The first picture is the picture of the danger of self-righteousness, and the second picture is the, is the freedom of repentance. So that's what I want to explore during our time together, the danger of self-righteousness and then the freedom of repentance. So let's look at the story. It's a short story, short and sweet, easy, it's fun. It's about two different people that go up to a temple to pray. And the first one that Jesus gives, this first picture, is of a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know what that means, Pharisees were just the religious leaders of the day. These were people that cared about the Bible, they went to church all the time, they were civic-minded, they were good husbands, good uh, dads. These were good people. These are the good guys. But Jesus gives us a picture of somebody who is a Pharisee who's doing all the good stuff, but answers those questions through looking at himself. Am I okay? Am I measuring up? Am I good with God? Yes. And the reason why is because he thinks I'm doing enough. Now, you might hear that and you think, well, what's wrong with that? Here's somebody with good self-esteem. He thinks he's enough. He's been reading, you know, reading Brene Brown. Here's somebody that, that is, is healthy. But, but Jesus goes deeper. He shows us three dangerous features of self-righteousness. And I want to show this to you. The first danger, the first dangerous feature of self-righteousness is that self-righteousness is always unavoidably competitive. It's always competitive. If you were to picture a ladder propped up against the wall or, you know, wherever, a ladder, you know what a ladder looks like. You see a ladder. Most people, when they ask themselves that question, am I enough? Am I measuring up? Most people instinctively start climbing up the ladder. We start performing. We start achieving. We, because we think enoughness is by going up, climbing. It's up there. But the, the problem with that is you never know how you're measuring up unless you look around you, unless you see that there's people beneath you on the ladder. And so that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's climbing up the ladder. He's thinking he's a good person because he's performing. But he bolsters that sense of self by seeing there are people down there beneath him. Look what he says in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
He's saying, I'm better than these people. That's how self-righteousness works, is you compare yourself to other people, and you say, I'm coming out on top. I'm not like them. I'm not like those people. And so here's what I want you to see. That instinct to compare is shot through everything we do, because we're all doing this. We compare our careers to each other. How am I sizing up to that person? We compare our bodies to each other. We compare our shopping habits. How ethical of a shopper am I compared to how ethical of a shopper is that person? We compare how well-behaved our children are to how well-behaved or not behaved someone else's children are. We compare how organized our house is compared to other people. Everything becomes a competition. Who is more concerned about the environment? Who's more missional? Uh, we, we compare the amount of Instagram followers we have. We are now even competing and comparing each other's Wordle scores with each other to give us a little sense of self-righteousness. Did it in two. I don't even know why this is so hard. Saw that quote the other day. But here's, here's the thing. Here's what's fascinating is that we even compete over how much suffering we've experienced. Um, <clears throat> I heard a, uh, this is a clinical psychologist, a guy named John Cox. He's a marriage therapist down in um, Jackson. He's come and taught some things here before. I, I heard him years ago at a conference, and he told this scenario where husbands and wives, this is kind of his made-up story, where husbands and wives compete over who had the, the harder day. You know, so he's like, this, the, the husband will come home at 6 in the you know, afternoon or whatever and be like, oh, I'm so, today was awful. The boss put this stressful deadline on me. It was so hard. It was, you know, the so-and-so was such a jerk to me. It was, you know, it was terrible. Like, I had the worst day ever. And the subtext is, therefore, you need to give me some space and let me, you know, leave me alone and let me take a break. And then the wife says something like, oh, well, I hope you enjoyed your eight-hour vacation today away from the chaos I endured because I had a baby with a fever screaming in my face for eight hours straight. The toddler was throwing food all over the walls. You know, I did three loads of laundry. Nothing's done. It's just, it's, you know, it's the subtext there meaning I'm the one that deserves a break. And it's not just in our marriages. This is a silly example. But even in friends, even in friendships, even in roommate situations, we compete. We leverage over who's had it worse so that you get more attention or more pity or more permission we're competing over every, even over crazy things. But here, here's, here's what's so dangerous about a competitive way of bolstering your own righteousness is that it, it inevitably alienates you from other people. This is what happens to the Pharisee. Look at verse 11. It says, he stands by himself. He's distancing himself from the people that he thinks he's better than. That's just... Um, the way it works, you've got to get away from these people so that you feel better about yourself. And notice how he sees other people. He only sees their flaws. He only sees the worst things in people. And then he labels them by that, the extortioners, the unjust, the tax collector. You see how divisive, alienating, ugly self-righteousness is. But it keeps going. Here's the second dangerous feature of self-righteousness. The second feature is that it fixates on numbers. It fixates on numbers, meaning his sense of righteousness isn't vague. It's not general. It's precise. I mean, he has this quantifiable. Look at um, verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. He knows how many times he fasts per week, and a tithe is 10%. He tithes 
all that he gets. In fact, there's a fact, there's a, I think it's a funny verse. Back in Luke chapter 11, if you rewind a few chapters back, you find out that the Pharisees tithed even their spices, like their cinnamon. I mean, can you imagine in the, you know, an offering plate going around at church and somebody pulls out like a little thing of paprika and be like, I got I to gotta get 10% of this to like that meticulous, that precise. That's how I know I'm the right kind of person because I have numbers attached to it. And you hear this and you think, that's insane. What kind of a person would bolster their sense of self-righteousness based off of metrics and numbers and I hate to break it to you, but you would, and I would. We all do. Our, I don't know if you've noticed how our whole world is dominated now by numbers, metrics, and scorekeeping. Every Sunday, which is the, the worst time to receive, I don't know if you get these notifications on Sunday. I get the little phone notification that dings up that says your screen time usage from the week. You know what I'm talking about? The worst notification in the world. Your percentage, you used the phone 80% more this week than last week. You've been on the phone 12 hours a day or whatever the number is, and it comes through. And it's either validating you and giving you a sense of, yeah, did better this week, or it condemns you. These numbers come in, and they either validate you or they condemn you because we're using them to get a sense of self, to you know, our own self-righteousness from it. We keep track of how many steps we take. We keep track of how many hours we slept last night, how many likes or comments we've received, how many views or video got that we posted, how many calories you took in, how many ounces of water you drank, your credit score, your bank balance, your weight. Here's the worst one, your unread messages. That number will crush you. Uh, I heard this. There's a couple uh, of members I was talking with a, a month or so ago that they told me this. I'd never heard this before. That We even have GPS devices now for our pets. Do you know about this? Where these, G the, these devices track the amount of steps that your dog takes. And it's all hooked up to a social network thing so you can see with your friends and your family who's actually walking their dog more than you are. And it becomes this competitive game of who loves their dog more than, than, my, you know, than your family or whatever. Everything becomes this metric scorekeeping competition. And all of these numbers are what base we use to base our self-righteousness off of. Do you see how dangerous this is, how divisive, how alienating, how crazy-making, the anxious slavishness of living up to these numbers that are just constantly evaluating our life by? Here's the third feature, and it's the worst. The third most dangerous feature of self-righteousness is that it ultimately blocks you from God. It's like this wedge that gets driven between you and God himself. And you see that at the end, the big plot twist of verse 14 is that this Pharisee goes home not justified. Now, the word justified and the word righteous seem like completely different words to you and me in English, but in Greek, it's actually the same word. Justified basically just means to righteousify somebody. So Jesus is looking at this person and saying, this guy, who's don't, he's doing all the right things. He's reading the Bible. He's tithing his paprika. He's doing everything right. And in the end, he's not right. In the end, he's not right with God. He's not just internally condemned. He goes home cosmically condemned. 
out of touch with God himself. And here's how, God, here's how Jesus kind of tags the whole story at the end. He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Meaning that if you try to prove that you are enough by your efforts, by your achievement, by your climbing up the ladder, you're going to be shocked to discover that you're going to be knocked all the way down to the bottom. You hear that and you think, good grief, that sounds harsh. Why is that the case? Here's why. Jesus said earlier, I have not come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. I have not come for the righteous. I have come for sinners. Meaning, Jesus has not come for the people that are just crushing it at life, that are just climbing up the ladder and just killing it and need God to come along by their side like a cheerleader just saying, you can do it, keep it up. God's not interested in being a cheerleader. He's only interested in being a savior, which means he has come for people that are broken, people that are screwed up, people that are failures, people that don't even get on the ladder because they know there's no point. I have no chance. I have no resources. Those are what, those are the people that Jesus has come for himself. And that's why we get the second picture. We don't just get this picture of the dangers of self-righteousness, but we have this other picture in the tax collector of the freedom of repentance. And so let's look at that, you know, as we finish. A tax collector, as opposed to a Pharisee, tax collectors were hated. They were seen as white-collar criminals. They were seen as con artists. They were, they were known by their greed, by their, by their willingness to take advantage of people. They did nothing right. Everybody hated them. And here's this tax collector that goes into the temple to pray, as Jesus says. And, and, and Jesus says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he's, he beats his breast. Which is a way of saying he's not looking out at other people and getting a sense of righteousness by comparing himself to others. He is sizing himself up by God himself as the ultimate standard of beauty and righteousness and perfection and holiness. And he knows, I can't, even, I can't even look up. I can't even, I'm crushed by that standard. I have no shot. So he looks down and he prays a one-sentence prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's fascinating. The word that he uses for mercy there. It's not the normal word that's used in the New Testament for mercy. The word he uses literally means, if you were to translate it, 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 it means to make atonement for. He's saying, God, make atonement for me, a sinner, which is a way of looking at God and saying, we are so out of sync. We are so not right. The only way for us to get right again is if you fix it. I can't make it right. I can't clean up my life. I can't dig myself out of this hole. He's, he's plead, that's why they translate it mercy. He's pleading for mercy. I can't do this. And then here's the plot twist for him. In the end, verse 14, the criminal who does nothing good is justified, is right with God. Now, how in the world does that make sense? How do you have somebody over here who's doing everything right Go home not right with God. And here's somebody over here who's done nothing right his whole life. He just asks for mercy, and God gives it to him, and he goes home right with God. How can that be the case? 
Here's how. Because what Jesus is doing in this story is he's hinting at what he himself is going to do for people like this tax collector and people like you and me. He will be the one to make atonement and make it right. And here's how he does it. Paul, later on in the New Testament, talking about Jesus, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Now, that's a mouthful, but if you break it down into two halves, here's what Paul just said. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was innocent, who was completely righteous, he made him to become sin for us, meaning on the cross he was treated as if he were the biggest sinner in the world, and that's why he's strung up, that's why he's bleeding, that's why he's suffering, because he's experiencing in himself what you and I deserve for our performance in life. He's getting the blame for the life that you and I lived so that, second half of the verse, you and I could get the credit for the life that he lived. So that in him, the verse says, we might become the righteousness of God. That we get a righteousness, we get a rightness that we didn't generate, we didn't manufacture. It is given to us, received when we admit I I don't have it together. When we're like the tax collector, I got nothing. When we humble ourselves and admit that's what we got, we got nothing and we need mercy, that's what opens the floodgates so that you are right with God, not based off of anything in you, but based off entirely of something in him. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the gospel. Now, now, how does that flesh out in practice, though? What does repenting of our self-righteousness day by day actually look like? Well, let me read you um, something in the, I included at the beginning of your bulletin. This is a quote from a guy named Thomas Brooks, who is a uh, Puritan. So this is written in the 1600s, so the language is a little outdated and clunky. But uh, he's writing about, uh, this is a, from a book on prayer, which he calls uh, what you and I might call personal devotions, you and I might call a quiet time when when Christians try to spend some alone time with God one-on-one. He calls them closet duties. This was kind of taking Jesus' language of when you pray, go into the closet, close the door so that you know that you're praying just for God and not for anybody else's sake. So he's talking about these things that Christians do. He calls them closet duties. But here's what he says. Quote, rest not on anything On this side of Jesus Christ, say to your graces, say to your duties, say to your holiness, you are not my savior. You are not my mediator. Therefore, you are not to be trusted in. You are not to be rested in. It is my duty to perform closet duties, but it is my sin to rely upon them or to put confidence in them. Do them I must But glory in them I must not. He that rests in his closet duties makes a savior of his closet duties. Now, you see what he's doing. He is looking at something about his life, something that's actually really good about his life, praying. Good thing. Thumbs up to prayer. He looks at it and says, I will pray, but I will not trust in it. I will not put my confidence in this thing that I'm doing. I put my confidence 100% in Jesus. 
Repenting of our self-righteousness means that we do a similar move. We assess, we do this honest inventory of our life. And we see what are those things about our lives that are good things, that are things that the Lord might be even blessing us with, but we are tempted to bank on. We are tempted to look at and say, that's what makes me special. That's what makes me unique. That's what makes me good. That's how I know I'm enough. That's how I know I'm measuring up. Finding those things and turning your back on them and talking back to them like he just did. You are not my savior. I will not rest in you. I will rest in Jesus. And so for you, it might look like realizing, okay, I really do believe that I'm, I'm the right kind of person because I take the Bible seriously, unlike some of these other people. Or I take social justice seriously, unlike some of, unlike some of these other people. Taking the Bible seriously, caring about social justice, great things. Recommend them. Terrible saviors. Repenting of that means that you look at these things about yourself and say, I will not trust in these things about me. Good as they are, I will trust in Jesus, who's infinitely better. Or maybe for you, you realize, you think, okay, I really do think I'm the right kind of person because of the way that we're raising our kids. Sure, we're not perfect. I know we're making mistakes, but we're not like that family. We're, we're, we're on the right track. Or maybe you're tempted to look at how generous you are or how conscientious of a shopper you are or uh, how involved in the city you are, how involved in this church you are. To look at those things that you're tempted to say, okay, this is, this is what I'm resting my life in and repenting and turning from Jesus. That's what we're being asked to do. That's what it means to follow Christ in our lives. And you look at that, you might think, good grief, that sounds exhausting. That sounds miserable. Why would I want to constantly be scanning my life, rooting out things that I'm resting in so that I can rest in Jesus? Here's why. Because the alternative to not doing that is way more exhausting, infinitely more exhausting trying to bolster your sense of self by climbing up a ladder where there's no end to it where you're constantly being either validated or condemned by metrics that are bombarding you, constantly enslaved, constantly anxi constant anxiety, constant going and going and going. That sounds infinitely more exhausting. You know what sounds freedom? You know what sounds like freedom and liberation? It's leaning into this prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because when you do that, you're opting out of the whole system. You're, you're, you're not even playing the game anymore. You're leaning into this reality that I have a great need for a savior, and praise be to God, I have a great savior for my need. That's freedom. Knowing that you're a bigger mess than you realized, and knowing that there is mercy that is more abundant for bigger messes than they realize than you realize. That's the freedom of repentance. So I want to invite you, I'm inviting myself to lean into that reality, to lean into that prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner, because we have a God that's merciful to the sick. We have a God that is merciful to sinners. We'll consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we are, uh, it's so silly, even when we think about it, how much we try to find um, ourselves, we try, to, we try to become okay, we try to decide how we're measuring up in these small and silly ways, and it just feels like we're running around on this 
hamster wheel. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to be honest with ourselves, to know that we're more insecure than we realize, we're more empty than we realize, we're more of a mess than we realize, and help us also to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our sufficiency, who is our righteousness, who is our goodness. And I pray that he and he alone would bolster us, would free us, would liberate us so that we might live a life of mercy that you've called us to. Help us by your spirit and by your grace, we pray.